Hi everyone, it's Bud. Welcome to another episode of Before the Cheering Started, all about the journey to success and professional fulfillment. Dr. Erwin Redlener has been helping kids all around the world for more than 50 years. Kids dealing with illness and lack of health care, kids dealing with abject poverty, kids dealing with war. Working with his wife Karen as a team, they started helping kids in the early 1970s in one of the poorest counties in America, in rural Arkansas. That path would eventually lead them to create in the mid-1980s, along with their friend Paul Simon, the Children's Health Fund, mobile medical units that see kids in the poorest parts of New York City and now around the country. And their journey has gone international including trips to help kids in Guatemala, Syrian refugees in Greece, and now Ukrainian kids and families displaced by the Russian invasion of Ukraine. The latest project on their journey is called UCAP, the Ukraine Children's Action Project. Can I imagine that at this point in your life, the notion of going back and forth to Ukraine often was, was not something that you had uh, foreseen in your work and your life? Well, that's putting it mildly, but, you know, it's like uh, this is consistent with work that I've been doing for all of my adult life. But on the other hand, if you had asked me 20 years ago what I'd be doing now at this age, at this time, uh, I, I don't think going back and forth to Ukraine would have been on the top of the list, let's say. Yeah. So um, I didn't never really, I actually never really saw myself as uh, retiring as such, but you know, slowing down, not having formal organizational responsibilities um, and focusing more on writing and other th less, uh, you know, being on boards or other things that are or not wouldn't require a lot of uh, actual moving around. But, you know, we've been to Ukraine and uh, Poland six times now in the last, well, since the war began, the last 15 months or so. So, um, but fortunately, I, you know, I'm physically uh, feeling uh fine, you know, and uh, managing my multitude of chronic illnesses and uh, everything is everything's good. But I, I wouldn't, uh, I could not, on the other hand, foresee myself at this point in stopping any of this either. So it's, it's until I can't is what the plan is. There's important work to be done. It's important. Yeah, there's always going to be, there always was, always will be important work to be done. But the question is, matching up your own personality and your own life missions with trying to deal with these problems or just saying like many people do it's like you know well, I, there's nothing to be done about it these problems are too big to tackle uh they're too complicated to understand and i've been working for you know a long time and i'm just you know it's now up to somebody else to deal with this which i i just want to add is is really you know when I first started doing this kind of work, which is in 1971, uh, running a uh, clinic for extremely indigent children in the six poorest county in the United States, which is in rural Arkansas. I mean, I was 27 years old when I got there and I said to people around me, hey, you know, 10, 15 years from now, well, there'll be no more uh, poverty, no more children in poverty. Everybody will have access to health care. I mean, I, I grew up in the Kennedy Johnson era, and I just thought these things were just, you just willed them uh, into solutions. But here we are, like, you know, more than 50 years later, and I find myself now apologizing to young people for the basically the mess 
that the world remains in sometimes you know there's been improvements but there's also been deteriorations and conditions for children which is been something that uh, i've been dealing with along with karen for forever basically so that's disappointing and i make a point of telling young people uh that listen i, I wish it was different but it isn't so you're up and um hopefully people will follow along who will do the kind of work that that uh is going to help the world young people like your grandchildren right like my grandchildren yeah exactly and uh of which there are six running around now from ages uh seven to 23 actually and uh you know it's uh i wish this wasn't a legacy that we were leaving and not only that it's even you know i'm worried about this next uh, generation or two generations. Uh, you know, I'm unsettled by artificial intelligence and even more so by the prospects of uh, AGI or artificial general intelligence. I'm unsettled by the fact that we're still in a game of brinkmanship uh, around uh, nuclear issues and the potential of a nuclear war, which I, I don't think we've gone beyond at all. That remains a a potential, even as we speak here, um, you know, there's these big, big issues that are existential for us. And the issues that, that I deal with are, you know, they're around alleviating uh, suffering and dealing with adversities that children are, are uh, dealing with. So it, it, they're big issues. And one of the things that's sort of, that keeps other people from sustaining this kind of work is it seems really it's overwhelming. And um, I recognize that, but the, there are antidotes for that personally. So uh, before we get to that, and I'm fascinated by that, uh, for those people who don't know of the work of the Ukraine Children's Action Project, uh, what can you tell us about it? Right after the war started, and it certainly got my attention. And the reason it got my attention is that uh, one of the immediate impacts is that there was a lot of displacement of children and families from the active war zones in the east and the south to elsewhere. Elsewhere might be to seek refuge uh, as what's called internally displaced persons. That means they would go to the west of Ukraine, where it was relatively free of active combat. It was free of active combat or to leave the country. So Ukraine, prior to the invasion by Russia, the total child population was about seven and a half million kids in Ukraine. About five million of them, about two thirds of them were displaced, half of them inside the country, half of them outside the country. And I just uh, immediately knew this was bad news. Children, the loss of normalcy, this displacement, which had no clear end in sight, uh, was going to be a, a bad thing. And I, you know, I didn't really think about myself having a role in particularly in dealing with this. I was just worried about it. And then a friend of ours uh, who had done this beautiful portrait of Zelensky uh, said, what should I do with this? And I said, well, uh, I wanted, she said she wanted to raise money for the effort uh, to deal with the war in there. And I said, um, Want, let's make prints and sell the prints. She did. She raised $125,000 and then said, uh, 
or where, who do I give it to? So Karen and I said, okay, well, we'll go to, uh, we'll go to Ukraine and see what we can figure out. And that's how, really how we got hooked. And by the way, that painter is Joan Baez, this, you know, the iconic legendary singer who we've been friends with since we met her in Arkansas. And so it was really Joan plus the reality of what was happening there that uh, hooked us in. And what we do now is we've raised uh, nearly three and a half million dollars uh, in the 15 months or so that we've been in existence. And we're supporting uh, close to 25 programs in Ukraine. And the reason we keep going back, we're going back next month, which I think will be our seventh trip to the region, is we want hands-on and eyes-on the programs that we're supporting. I mean, Americans know nothing about really, you know, NGOs, you know, not-for-profit organizations in Ukraine. So where are donors' eyes and ears? We meet the people that are running the programs. We see the programs in action. We track them. We go back. We visit them. Uh, we hired a woman to be the director uh, for our for UCAP, who uh, lives and has an office now in Lviv in Ukraine. So we're extremely hands-on. And the main things that drove us, what we are most concerned about, um, are two problems. One is massive amount of uh, psychological trauma. And the second thing is educational disruption. And we could talk more about both of those things. But we also do humanitarian assistance, like uh, working with the American Federation of Teachers uh, to provide generators in schools uh, when power is out so they can continue functioning and all that. So we have a lot of projects uh, and we're a presence there and including meeting with members of parliament and uh, partnering with all kinds of people, uh, including parliament to make uh, larger scale programs happen. And is the notion that immediate help that comes from outside is great and of course is needed, but it's that, that, that next step, the notion of after that immediate help yeah stops or the immediate attention goes away, the problems don't go away and the follow-up is almost just as important. There's no question about it, but that's a very good point. And one of the things that uh, we need to understand is that even if the war ended this afternoon, which is no chance for it happening anytime soon, but let's say hypothetically it did, the recovery of Ukraine and the reestablishment of normalcy for its people and especially its children, it's going to take a very long time. I mean, recovery, uh, to me, is not just about the rebuilding of structures that have been damaged, but it's about the reestablishment of, uh, you know, systems, of uh, educational systems, of uh, cultural activities, of a normal uh, community life that many people that have been displaced and are grieving, uh, they, need, they need that back at some point. So it's gonna be a long, long, expensive and intellectually complicated process to put uh, uh, Ukraine back on track. And by the way, it's also important, I just wanna mention in this context, Ukraine is a beautiful country. It is extraordinarily beautiful physically. It's very, very active, vibrant, Culturally, scientifically, uh, it's advanced. It's upper, its universities are f phenomenal. But if you walk around Lviv, you're like in a mini Paris. There's, there's shopping, there's restaurants, there's much that you know an American 
would identify with immediately, including Kiev, where we were in the, on our last trip. These are big, powerful cities with great people under siege by a superpower uh, for its own reasons that has caused a lot of pain and suffering. Are the lessons you've learned throughout your career in the various chapters, namely being in Arkansas as a young doctor in a, in a poor rural county in Arkansas, and years later creating a children's health fund in New York for kids uh, underprivileged, underserved, however you yeah. want to describe them, kids in New York, and then various places around the world, Guatemala. Are, do those lessons pertain now, or is this a whole new ballgame? Uh, turns out there are no whole new ball games. It's the <laughs> same ball games, different stadiums. Um, and is that a stretched analogy? But I, I don't know. No, that's a. You know what that but, that says it all right there. Yeah, but you know, a thread run a thread runs through them all. Thread is unnecessary, avoidable, manageable adversity that no child should have to experience. And, you know, in 2017. I visited a bunch of uh, refugee camps in northern Greece that were, quote unquote, homes for Syrian refugees. Families, family languishing there. You know, it, it, it's so that story was spoken in Syrian to me via translators. These other stories now are being spoken to me in uh, in Ukrainian with translators. But you know, you could almost you could almost say they're the same stories repeated in a different setting, uh, all of which are bad for humanity. They're just terrible for humanity. And the people that we deal with are not combatants. They're children and children's families. They're people literally who have identical aspirations uh, and uh, ideas to what any any American family is that you might encounter. I mean, there's a kid that uh, actually it was a family of four that I met in a, in a refugee camp of Syrians. Uh, they had been there for two years. And um, the mother was a teacher in, in uh, Damascus. Previously, the father was a uh, bus driver and two beautiful young girls. And I said, uh, and again, via the translator, of course, what do you want to be when you grow up? And this beautiful 11-year-old girl said to me with a big smile on her face, I want to be a doctor. Well, I knew that she'd already been out of school for three years and zero prospects for placement in some normal facility or country anytime in the near future. And I looked at her knowing that, yeah, well, you know, there's no chance. This kid is, there's, there's no foreseeable flight path for her to get to uh, medical school, at least from where I was sitting right there. And uh, and my it turns out one of my granddaughters was exactly the same age, also wanted to be a doctor at the time. God knows what she wants to be now, but that's, <laughs> I, I can only think of Naomi as I was talking to this kid, Marina, I think her name was, but, you know, and that kind of disparity uh, and very unfair application of adversity into a kid's life bothers the hell out of me. Really, th this is really what drives me. It's, it's more being very disturbed, angry about disparities of opportunity for children.
and compassion. I'm, I'm sure people would describe me as compassion. It's fine. I'll, I'll take that. But I'm angry that, that there's so many children in the world that have to deal with this through absolutely no choice of their own. So this is really where I am at this point in my life. When you were growing up, and I remember from previous interviews that you said you moved a lot I did. when you were growing yeah. up. Yeah. Um, is there a spoken, considering the work that you eventually got into, is there a spoken or unspoken lesson from your family of, oh, we're not just here to have a good time, we're, we're here to make a difference does, is there, are those themes kind of rumbling around in your brain as yeah, a young you know, kid, it's another even very, before you become a young doctor? Yeah, another very, uh, you know, it's a, that's a very interesting and important question for people like me. And I don't know, you know, it's like if they say who you are, how you behave is a combination of nature and nurture, you know, like you, mm-hmm. you there's things, that, there's certain things are just born with your genetic makeup influences a lot of who you are, but so does your environment and what you, who, where you grow up, how you grow up, etc. But um, the reality is, there was not much spoken. My mother was a teacher, very dedicated teacher. When she waited to go back, go into education once her all of her children were old enough to go to school, but she was very, very devoted, and that was clear to all of us, my brothers and I. And uh, my dad was a psychologist. Uh, and, and kind of a, a really uh, kind of a loner guy who hated authority. And he, the reason he kept moving is he got, kept getting transferred and fired. And I don't know what, but, um, but he was also a social activist, big time, um, to the point where he was uh, the target of uh, Joe McCarthy and those horrible hearings. He lost his job as a psychologist at that point and ended up selling Fuller brushes door to door. But that was for whatever period of time. But he marched in Vietnam uh, against Vietnam. He was a veteran who liberated concentration camps in World War II in Europe. But uh, he was a social activist that we were very aware of. He never said anything. He didn't seem said nothing about his experiences in the war, said a little about his activism. But there was, you know, you get, you're growing up with your family and you were absorbing things overtly and covertly that you can't quite describe where they came from but no there were never let there were never even like dinner time talks about big issues of the day we just sort of knew about some of them not all of them and found out a lot about what my father was up to you you know even after he died in 1976 but anyway that's uh it's a complicated uh question which i don't fully know the answer to but that's the best i could do but when when you're in medical school and as a young doctor before you go to Arkansas is the notion of, okay, I'm going to be a doctor uh, and this is the kind of doctor I'm going to be. And this is the kind of life I'm going to lead. Or was it all kind of still uh, an unanswered question for you at that point? I think unanswered mostly, but I did know this. I was very attracted to dealing with crisis. So I, really wanted to do intensive care for children. Um, and, you know, I, I'm comfortable with uh, complexity and, you know, the need for immediate action uh, and just, I guess, my own sort of personality 
likes that. I think I'm pretty good at it. And um, that's what I was going to do. And in fact, I was heading towards a, uh, a fellowship in pediatric cardiology. They didn't have fellowships in pediatric intensive care, which I would have probably gone for. But I was signed up for a cardiology training program in ch- for children and, um, and ended up getting distracted by this poster I saw that was inviting doctors to come to Arkansas. And that was that. And I dropped the fellowship that I was supposed to be going to and went there. And I got everything at once. I got helping children, dealing with children in adversity, political stuff, advocacy, and crisis. It was kind of a dream job in this horrendously impoverished, racist county there in Arkansas. It's amazing what the things are that open up the windows to the rest of our lives. Isn't it? For you, for you it was a poster. It was a poster. And I'll tell you, the big picture, I think maybe a bit for you too, uh, but is, is the, uh, the, the issue of being able to respond to, to serendipity, serendipitous exposures, encounters, people you meet. And there's some people who live perfectly wonderful lives, much more laser focused. I mean, I knew kids who from age nine wanted to be a pathologist where that came from who the hell knows but uh but most people in medicine are like that they get in college university they go to medical school they figure out which specialty they're attracted to and that's it they go down that road um there's a few people in medicine not many in medicine but who are kind of some very susceptible to these serendipitous encounters i'm hyper serendipitously sensitive uh, which is one of the reasons I'm actually still in uh, in you doing this work in Ukraine, even way more extensively than I thought possible. Why? Because Joan Baez decided she was concerned and what she wanted to do something with her talent, which includes painting. And if she hadn't called me, I don't know, I, get, I may have done something. I have no idea. I, I've given up analyzing stuff like that. But the point is that, oh, this looks interesting. Why don't you go here? Let's think about this. And um, and that's been a driving force for me for a long time. So when you're heading to Arkansas, is this decision a no-brainer, or are there nights of, oh, wait, what am I doing here? No, no nights like that. Uh, you know, it's like, I, you know, I, it's a family show here, so I can't use the language that I would use for <laughs> having lunch together. But, but uh, no, I was like, that's it, I'm doing this. I didn't, I didn't think twice about it. And the only thing I thought about was uh, telling the uh, senior cardiologist I would have been working with in three months um, that I wasn't taking his highly desired fellowship training. And uh, that was a little nerve wracking. He was not too happy, but um, I, I was not, I, I, I didn't really have second thoughts at all about it. Surprisingly, it's probably not great that I didn't, but I didn't. Is there a way that one can prepare for, as a young man, as a young doctor, uh, treating kids in this abject poverty in this county, Lee County, Arkansas, and also at times, as I understand it, being followed by the Klan? Uh, it was, to train for that, I don't know what it, what that is, actually, but and we and we have tried creating training programs for doctors who want to work uh, with uh, children, underserved children, children in poverty, and so on. 
And people get attracted to those kind of training programs if they're fundamentally interested in it. If there's no interest in dealing with the problem, uh, the problems that are rampant, you know, economic, uh, racism, political strife, et cetera, then uh, it, it's hard to train for. And the other thing is that some people do these things for compassion reasons purely. They don't care about the context. They, didn't, they don't care about, uh, you know, why the Klan and similar organizations were active there. They just see, you know, this is the Mother Teresa model. I don't care about why these impoverished people are here in front of me, but they are, and I'm going to try to take care of them because, you know, for religious reasons or whatever it is. Um, I, uh, you know, I never function like that. Um, I, I don't function purely out of compassion. Like I was saying, it's like, this is not right. And I feel like I can do something about it. And that's what drives me to do these things, at least for me. So, um, uh, I don't know, planning for it, training for it. No, I didn't. I didn't really. I just had a standard pediatric, uh, you know, with medical school on a standard pediatric residency and then going to this um, cardiology pathway. But but uh, no, but inherent in me, related to the question asked before about how I was raised and what values, they just, I just had them, whatever they were. And, you know, I remember the first ride in, from the Memphis airport where my soon-to-be boss uh, drove, picked me up, was driving me into, into rural Arkansas, riding through these roads of, uh, you know, cotton and soybean fields and horrendous uh, shacks and little little villages uh it was it was eye-opening and i nothing that i saw uh, uh diminished my interest in fact it exact i said i i want to be here and look i was from brooklyn originally uh i knew nothing i barely knew where arkansas was i almost <laughs> didn't know where arkansas was but i uh but anyway this is um it's a lot of internal drivers that create conditions that draw people to a particular work or not. I would imagine doing this work through the years, there's an element of trying not to be surprised by anything that you see. About 15 years after you arrive in Arkansas, through your connection with Paul Simon and USA for Africa and We Are the World and being on that project, uh, you connect with him and you create one of the great programs in New York, Children's Health Fund. And as I understand it, that starts with a trip to the place called the Martinique Hotel it does. in Midtown Manhattan. This is in, again, New York City. This is not in rural Arkansas. This is in New York City in the mid-80s, and you walk in and you recall your response to what you saw. You know, uh, that may have been the last time I was truly surprised. I knew there were homeless children in New York. Um, I didn't know, didn't have any inkling that I'd be actually getting involved in. But Paul Simon told the leaders of uh, the We Are the World, you know, USA for Africa program that he wanted to do something about homelessness in New York. And they, I, since I was medical director of um, of uh, USA for Africa, they they connected me with Paul. We we touched base. He called me, or I called him, whatever. But um. I said, well, let's go, let's go check it out. And uh, we went, somebody suggested we go visit this uh, really condemnable building, which once was a grand hotel in the Martinique in midtown Manhattan. And uh, 
we toured through there and I was, I was flabbergasted, but it was, there were a thousand children essentially warehoused at the Martinique hotel with their moms and siblings in horrendous conditions, active drug dealing and prostitution. It was a kind of a hotel from hell for totally disconnected, disenfranchised children and families. And I, you know, Paul Simon, he barely could compose himself. He was truly shocked. I had at least been in similar kinds of circumstances, but nothing to this extent. And uh, it turns out that the, there's striking similarities, which is why I'm not, not like surprised would be the wrong word. I'm constantly mortified. I'm constantly upset to see children like this, but surprised not so much because they're common. There's lots of common ground among children, Syrian refugees in Greece, Ukrainian children, children in rural Arkansas, homeless children in New York, and so on and so forth. And those kids uh, need normalcy. They need the basics. They need a good education. They need good health care. They need opportunity. They need a stable family environment. And that's what gets ruined in all of these situations of intense adversity that uh, children in these various environments experience. It's a very common thread there. And so that reality eliminates surprise, not deep distress uh, and anger that there are kids like that. One of the beautiful parts of the story to me, uh, and I would assume to many others, is that you've shared this work with your wife, Karen, and I'm always, and from the beginning, I believe you met her in I did, in, in rural Arkansas. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, and I remember you told me once that actually working on this type of work in that setting it can actually be kind of a romantic setting. <laughs> we, when we think of a romantic uh, setting, we might not think of that, no, but I, I understand your Paris point. And the Riviera, but uh, no, it was like, First of all, she was 21 when she got there, and I was 27. She just graduated from Pomona College in California, joined VISTA, Volunteers in Service to America. And uh, I told Ali Neal, my extraordinary boss there, uh, that I needed a social worker. This is right after I got there. There was, there was all kinds of issues that we needed a social worker for, not to mention the fact that I needed somebody to do developmental screening and hearing and vision screening for kids, et cetera. Anyway, we called Vista headquarters. We need a social worker. We don't have a social worker. We have a young woman who just graduated as a sociology major. You know, it's like, okay, so you know, <laughs> close enough for government work. And here comes this extremely talented, crazily beautiful young woman who just settled in and was working her tail off uh, with the team, getting this stuff done. She ended up uh, screening a thousand children in rural, rural Arkansas for hearing and vision, developmental delays and so on. And what could be more romantic than that? Just, that, was, that was a combination that was, I, look, I found irresistible. And I also love the notion of through the years I mean, I've spoken to people whose work, like uh, Dr. Brian Greene at Columbia with string theory, and I remember talking to him about 
how, how can you explain to a spouse or family members what a good day is when string theory is a bit of a hard, I'm just using that as an example, that's a bit of a hard one to explain. But the notion of having done this work together, I would imagine there's an unspoken language or even a look of when you go to Greece or when you go to Ukraine, that there's a, you know, you don't need to say, oh, the thread runs through this. You, you just look no, at each I mean, other and know we've lived we've been it. through it together. Yeah, yeah. we've lived it. Um, and, you know, I know a lot of great couples who, you know, the moms in healthcare and the dads in finance or, you know, whatever, disparate fields. And I, I, Karen, I often say, what do they talk about at night? <laughs> we, you know, it's like, how was your day? And the uh, yeah. one person is saying, I don't know, whatever, however they describe what they're doing in their yeah. offices or whatever. But um, for us, first of all, there's no day versus night. You know, we're, we're involved really all the time, all the time. And we do plenty of fun things and lots of stuff for our grandchildren. But the work is never far behind. So we could be, we're just at Niagara Falls with a couple of our uh, grandchildren and we're getting calls for this and an email and we got to respond to this. And uh, Karen says, I got to take this. And she wanders off the Ferris wheel and goes and deals with this call. Um, and, you know, it's like, it's very, very blended. Um, I'm not saying 100% of the time that's great, but it is what it is. And we, we're into it. And uh, we spend a lot of fun time together. We, we, I think have a very great uh, relationship in all aspects. And, but our work is not separated from our, the rest of the, our lives, basically. You mentioned early in the conversation, antidotes. Antidotes, I would imagine, to this notion of these problems that you first saw more than 50 years ago are still with us, perhaps even more so. And that that notion could it's it's not unreasonable to think that notion could drag someone down antidotes. What are some of the antidotes you've learned through the years? Never. Working alone, and let me explain what I'm saying about this. So I long time ago, I was asked by the New England Journal of Medicine to review a, <coughs> a book written by a doctor who finished his residency and decided to open a practice in one of the most economically depressed areas of Philadelphia. And he opened a solo office. I can't remember if it was a pediatrician or probably a, a GP or family doctor, but, um, and he left after about two years there and went back into kind of a normal life in academics. And the book was about how difficult it was he couldn't get his referrals uh, seen by the subspecialist. He, he was all, there was nobody to talk to. It was him, a nurse, a receptionist, and that was it. On a, in an island, in the middle of an island of poverty and disparity. And that, to me, is something that gets dealt with by being part of a group. And let me explain it. So, the Vista, the clinic that we opened, that was open in Arkansas was, was a Vista clinic. So there was a great staff of local people and as well as people came from the outside. It was a, an esprit de corps that's irreplaceable. And um, when you are in an environment like that, I could not have done that by myself, like just doing a solo practice in Arkansas. It was terrifying. It was overwhelming. And... Uh, However, 
I was like, you know, unbounded in my ability to do stuff and create things, make shit happen. I'm sorry, make stuff happen. And, uh, and then, you know, it's like, I took this idea, by the way, when we did the Children's Health Fund, we started in New York, as you said, but we, we now in 25 places around the country uh, where there's extreme adversity and disparities and lack of access to care. But from the beginning of creating this network, every doctor that got hired anywhere in the country as the new programs emerged was, I said to them, you are a pediatric, you're a pediatrician advocate, you're a physician activist, and you're part of a team. And that, you know, so we have people that are working in inner cities all over the place, but they're part of the Children's Health Fund uh, and or the institution locally they're connected to. So one of the main antidotes for the things that uh, that make people give up uh, is being connected uh, to others that are doing similar work. The second thing is that for some people, Going in every day and taking care of children in need is enough. Other people, not enough. It's very frustrating. There's no end to the stream of patients waiting to see you. And some people get, myself included, of course, get great satisfaction from saying, what is causing this endless array, this parade of patients of this kind that are coming to me? I want to deal with the root causes. I want to be an advocate. This is the Albert Schweitzer syndrome, where a doctor goes into the jungle and keeps seeing people. He has no idea or apparent interest in why or what to do about the root causes. Uh, the person is getting satisfaction from the daily encounters, not me. And I wouldn't, I, I wouldn't be able to survive in that environment. I have to know that I'm working on the big picture, that I'm talking to people like you, in fact, uh, and spreading the word about what needs to get done. And, you know, being, uh, you know, getting right up to that border of uh, political activism, which we're supposed to avoid, which I never thought was a good idea to avoid anything that might help the root causes. I, I want to give you an interesting example. So during COVID, I was on TV a lot uh, on MSNBC talking about COVID and what needs to be done and uh, why people need to get vaccinated. And, uh, you know, we were confronting MAGA, uh, the Trumpites, the misinformation, the social media onslaught against science. And at some point, like long, like almost at the end of the severe crisis, uh, one of the anchors on TV asked me, uh, so what's the message for people who are not getting vaccinated? I said, I'm out, of I'm out of information. I'm out of messages. I've said it a million times, as have my, many of my colleagues. If you don't get vaccinated, you'll have a higher chance of dying from, uh, from COVID. That's it. That's the medical message. And if people don't like that, well, I mean, I don't have any, there's nothing else in my medical bag to help them understand right. this. It's like stopping smoking. Yeah, you don't have to stop smoking, but, you know, be prepared to, you know, be a, a vulnerable to lung cancer. It's like that. After that, it's up to communicators, to politicians, to people who specialize in, I don't know, 
dealing with misinformation and how do you get across an argument to people that are ignoring truth? That is not a topic in medical school. That's all I can yeah. say. So it's like, yeah. you know, stop asking me. Ask Bud Mishkin. He'll know better about how to convince people. This is his, this is his profession. This is what he right. does, not what I do. But anyway, I've done it as much as I can deal with those root causes. One last thing. Uh, speaking of working as a team, uh, safe to say your buddy, Paul Simon, still has not gone for the notion of the duo of Simon and Red Leonard. <laughs> you know, I keep asking him, but he says, you know, you need to how to, you need to know how to sing. You know that? I, <laughs> I didn't know that, but OK, I'll, I'll keep that in mind. But no, yeah, he's, uh, you know, try as I will. As my father used to say, picky, picky, picky. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> true, true words. Erwin, yeah. last thing for people who want to learn more about Ukraine Children's Action Project and perhaps donate, where can they go? Uh, the best thing is our website, which is ucap.help. That's it. No apps or anything like that. Just UCAP for Ukraine Children's Action Project, ucap.help. That's it. And you'll be in our land, our land of promise and possibility. Your work has always and continues to inspire me. Nice and uh, Thanks. there are days on the job, in this job, uh, many days when I learn. And those are wonderful days. And every time I spent with you, I felt that way. Well, thanks so much. Pleasure to be with you as always. Dr. Irwin Redlener. At an age when most are just happy to smell the coffee, he and his wife Karen no doubt enjoy the coffee, but it's more than occasionally on the run as they get ready to leave for another trip to Ukraine. Before the Cheering started is a production of June 14th Productions and Gemini 13 Productions. This episode was created and written by me. Guitar playing, that's me as well, no extra charge. I'm Bud Mishkin, and this is Before the Cheering Started. Thanks for joining us on the journey. Thank you.